Hi, welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us in this Partners in Excellence podcast. Uh, where I'm really uh, delighted today to have Chris Palmisano of, uh, of SolarWinds join us to talk about something that has gotten a lot of controversy in, in a lot of kind of the trade press these days about selling in the cloud. What's it take to be a successful cloud or SAS salesperson? And Chris has been doing this for years and has had more success than most people I've ever met. So, you know, I thought I'd go straight to Chris and we'd have a conversation about, uh, you know, what it means to sell in the cloud, how it's different from kind of traditional sales that many of us may have had with whether it's a kind of a hardware product kind of sale or whether it's a software sale or a service sale. So we'll really look at what are the similarities, what are the differences, and how do we become very, very successful if, if we want to look to getting jobs and careers in, in, in selling uh, for companies whose, whose products are cloud-based uh, products. So Chris, welcome. It's good, good to have you join us. Thanks for having me, Dave. I appreciate your time and the opportunity to speak with you today and talk a little bit about sales and selling software and you know what's going on in that space today. Terrific, terrific. Just so everybody gets to know you and has you a little sure. bit calibrated, you share a little bit of your background and share a little bit. I know you've recently gone to Solar Winds and they're doing some really exciting things. So share a little sure. bit about Solar Winds. Yeah, great. So I started my career out as an officer in the military and spent about five years doing America's bidding around the world and then moved on, made that transition to the private sector and worked in new business development and healthcare. Um, and then on the back end of having gone back to school, uh, went to Google and worked at Google for several years in both the Google Apps platform, which is a software as a service solution, and then the Google Cloud platform, which encompasses both some SaaS solutions as well as some platform as a service and infrastructure as a service solutions. And then just a few months ago, I joined SolarWinds, which is a company located and headquartered here in Austin. Um, and we're building a cloud business that uh, aims to give our customers a full stack monitoring solution for applications that are either in a data center or hybrid cloud. So in the cloud plus in the data center or multi-cloud. So we strive to give uh, or to be mission control for your apps in the yep. cloud. Great, great. So, I mean, you really have bring a rich experience to us. You know, the experience with, you know, Google, who's probably one of the granddaddies of all kind of cloud-based sales kinds of efforts. And really, you know, SolarWinds, which isn't really a startup, but it still is an early stage company. And, and so you're going through the challenges of developing your new sales model and how you really grow in in. Uh, in the space, so let's let's move on to the the topic at hand, and and the issue really is, um, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a sales professional selling cloud-based or SaaS-based based products? You know, is it you know really different than everything that we do? Kind of you know normally, if we're a product salesperson, if we've sold maybe industrial products for a while, or maybe we've sold some enterprise software systems. You know, what's your view of, of the similarities, the differences, and, and those kinds of things? Sure. So there's a couple of things that are uh, a little bit different. So for one, I think there's some technical components to it, and I'll talk about those. And then I think there's some that are based on the business model. So on the technical side, what is important to understand is what are you really selling when you're selling a software as a service solution? So underneath the hood, you have all the components that come with a software solution. So there's your app. And then there's the data that's underneath it or that's in the database. 
Um, there's something happening at runtime. Um, there's, in some cases, depending on how complex the software is, there's probably middleware. Uh, there's an operating system. There's probably some virtualization sitting on top of some hardware. And then you've got storage and networking. So when you actually sell someone or deliver a software as a service solution, you're delivering all of it. And the end user is basically interacting with your app or your service through a browser. Yep. And it's a very simple, seamless, and should be a very intuitive experience. Um, so you're not actually selling something that someone has to go install on a machine somewhere else of their own. So the delivery model is different. So there's three primary delivery models in the cloud. There's the software as a service, which is where you're delivering all of those things that I just mentioned. Yeah. Then there's the platform as a service, which kind of sits in the middle, uh, which the developer or uh, the end user is still responsible for the app and their own data. But the provider, something like a Google or an Amazon or a Microsoft, provides everything else. And then on the infrastructure as a solution, or rather infrastructure as a service side, um, you still come on in as the end user and build a stack. Yep. So, and build your own stack from top to bottom. Um, the software as a service, where that gets different is you're actually providing the entire solution. And it's delivered over the web. And it's generally considered to be very seamless and very intuitive. Um, so on the sales side, what's different about that is um, the way these business models have emerged, we have now these subscription models. So you sell a subscription either on a monthly recurring revenue basis or in the form of an annual contract. Now this is very different than selling like traditional package software or you know, databases where someone engages yeah. one time, signs a gigantic contract, and that's it and then maybe somebody or an account manager comes back in later for a renewal. On the SaaS side, uh, you're actually just starting a relationship with that customer. And each individual customer starts to look like an annuity um, from a financial perspective. And annual contracts start to get interesting because then you have more predictability in the value of the company. So then you can start to think about how these things impact investors, markets. Um, so these businesses have... Uh, these businesses are very interesting because there is, honestly, a little more predictability in the revenue once you start to lock it in. Yeah, well, let me, let me kind of go back and break it down a little bit. You know, first of all, sure. you, you talked about, you know, technically understanding your product. And that's, you yeah. know, to me, that's every good salesperson really has to understand their product, whatever it is, whether it's, it's a, a bulldozer, a manufacturing control system, um, maybe an enterprise, enterprise software like things we've seen from, say, Oracle or SAP. They're, they're kind of enterprise-based versions sure. uh, or cloud-based things. So we have to understand our product and our solution. We have to understand what it does for our customers and what problems it solves. So, so selling in a, a, in a SaaS environment is really no different than selling uh, in, in another environment. We have to know those kinds of things. But then the model of how you engage the customer, well, you know, there are a whole bunch of things. How do you, how you engage the customer, how you build that relationship, which you said is so critical, and how you maintain that over a long period of time. The issue with a, a subscription model is at whatever period of time the subscription moves uh, ends up, and, and actually since you're selling something that probably isn't customized very much, it makes it very easy for 
the customer to potentially cancel their subscription, go someplace else. And so that whole model of how do you build that ongoing relationship and recurring revenue is probably a little bit different than most product salespeople are used to. Yeah, I, I would agree. So there's a few things you mentioned there that I think are interesting. So the first one is the, the product knowledge. So whether you look at this from an experiential perspective or if you even dive into the academic research on it, there's generally three primary success factors for salespeople in any line of sales. And that's, yeah, yeah. and it's not things that people would generally expect, but it's, it's the primary motivator, like, are you in this because, uh, or do you have a, um, a positive mental attitude and outlook? So that's the first one. And that's generally not what people would expect. Um, the second one is generally, do you have a prospecting nature? Um, to su supplement whatever inbound activity the company might provide you with or your marketing department might provide you with. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, you never get enough leads from marketing. So you've got to be able to go out and produce some of your own. So that prospect nature is important too. But then product knowledge comes up there as the third. So I think it's important to note that, yes, it's extremely important, and yes, we have to know our product, especially if we're selling software. Yeah. Uh, we should have somewhat of a technical understanding of what's happening with the product. Um, but it's still three. There's still those two other things that are extremely important and in most cases even more important. Yeah, but the product knowledge is extremely important. And then the second thing that you mentioned is building that relationship um, and then you know, looking at revenue from an ongoing perspective. So there's a couple of things. One of the big trends is to stand up these customer success teams. And customer success is part and parcel of working alongside sales. Um, I would suggest that the entire organization really has to come together from your lead gen and your marketing teams yeah. um, to your sales teams to then your like perhaps key account teams alongside your customer success teams and your tech support teams. And they all understand what are the primary metrics, what are the hands handoffs and the handoff mm -hmm. points between one team and the next team, and then how do we all work together? So customer success is generally looking at things like how do we minimize the monthly recurring revenue churn? How do we engage customers and ensure that their experience on the platform or in the product is positive and that um, we understand when it looks like they might churn and that we understand why so that we can funnel that feedback alongside those other teams back into the product development process so that the product keeps getting better. And I think each one of those teams has a role to play in that process. So sales can do things like win-loss analysis. Marketing can look at where do customers fall out of the funnel and at what, uh, if you're doing something like lead scoring, at what lead score uh, do we want to hand those leads off to the sales team? Uh, customer success can funnel feedback in from several places, the churn data as well as um, any sort of community that they might be managing to interact with customers. And then tech support has tickets. Um, they have ticket volumes and you know, categorization systems for ticketing that they can then also funnel back into product development. So if you're a product developer, if you're a product guy or a product gal, you've got feedback coming in from marketing, sales, customer success, and tech support, in addition to what you're collecting on your own. So that gives you several different data points and viewpoints to consider how to make the product better so that the relationship with the customer is stronger, primarily because they just love the product. And I think that's the important piece. Yeah, well, and it's really kind of an interesting dynamic is some of the things that I've seen with some of the kind of really successful SAS companies is, is that entire corporate focus on 
the customer of just, you know, making sure that they're buying the right product in the first place, making sure that their experience from the very first day that they use the product through the whole life cycle of that product is great, both in terms of the experience, adding functionality, adding new features and things, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And I think what drives that is the fact that we can lose that customer next month. They could choose not to subscribe again and continue that revenue stream. So there's in there's kind of that natural forcing factor, I think, in, in SaaS companies that should be there in every other company. We can learn a lot uh, in, in other types of companies, other types of business models because of what you're doing. You know, typically I spend a lot of my career in enterprise sales and computer hardware sales. And a lot of times, you know, what it was was thanks for the purchase order customer. Good luck, Godspeed. And I'll sure. see you next time you need to upgrade. And we That's lost right. track of them during that process. Yeah. Um, so I think that happens a lot. I've seen that other places too. Um, and I would say there's probably no organization that's perfect at it, but the better you can get at it and the more focused on a customer you can get, the better off I think you are in the long run, especially in a business like this one where at any given time a customer can leave. Like they can vote with their feet. They either stop using your product or they cancel their subscription altogether or they do both. Um, and then they can go to one of your competitors, which then compounds the problem. Um, and switching these days is very simple. You literally shut yeah. down one service, pull up a web browser, go to the competitor and log in. Um, so it, it's really, the switching costs are, are rather low in most cases. Um, and a lot of companies, you make the data available, so it's not like the data is a sticky yeah. point either. Um, yeah. So those are some things that generally have to be considered. Um, and anybody that's ever gone through any solid sales training, they generally all include how to manage that post-sale step where you want to avoid something like buyer's remorse. So I think there is a place for the salesperson to be involved even after the deal closes, um, although that relationship may transition to a customer success team or to another team. Um, sales teams generally tend to be focused and compensated on net new additions to recurring revenue or bringing in new business. Um, so there's a, there is a play, though, I think, for the salesperson to be involved after a deal closes to ensure that the customer gets started and gets up and running, although that onboarding function is probably owned by another team. Yeah, and we, we see that a, a lot in kind of other types of industries and other types of business models where you may have, you know, new account acquisition teams and then customers, uh, major account management teams where, where they're really looking at building that long-term relationship and maximizing share of um, uh, a share of customer and those kinds of things. So, so those are, are, are really kind of interesting kind of commonalities or things where, again, I think the SIS model or the cloud-based model, because of the attention, because of the fragility, perhaps, of the customer relationship and that ongoing revenue stream, you really put in place the mechanisms to pay attention to that, to measure that, and to make sure that the handoffs across the organization are really smooth. And I think I see a lot of other organizations stumbling into this by accident rather than purposefully. You know, I, sure. I've said, I've seen this whole new vocabulary. I didn't know what, you know, before I started dealing with cloud-based companies, I didn't know what this whole thing about customer success was. And now you see all these customer success organizations and metrics 
that impact them, the overall organization, and salespeople. So again, I think there's some really powerful lessons. Let me go to, there's some, I think, I would claim mythology around cloud-based sales. And uh, hopefully it's mythology or maybe it, it's, it's truth. But, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff going on. Some months ago, uh, the CEO of an emerging cloud-based company, you know, said, in the cloud, we don't need salespeople at all. You know, the sure. product is so good, it sells, it sells itself. So salespeople are dead in SAS. Uh, based sales. But then you look at, at companies like Google, you look at companies like Salesforce.com uh, and so on, and you see them making massive investments in salespeople. I just read an article this morning, in fact, uh, talking about HubSpot, and they said, you know, 40% of the employees in HubSpot are salespeople. Sure. So you run the yeah. gamut between, you know, people who say, the cloud doesn't need any salespeople at all. You just, you know, get people to click on your website, maybe click that try it for free button, uh, and you got them hooked, and you can grow a business that way. And then you have others that say, you know, sales is a critical part of establishing that relationship yeah. and building the business. So I love this question. I really do. And I feel this one a lot. So like the death of a salesman or the death of the salesperson? Right. Um, I think it's hype. I do. And I think it's mythology. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, if you think about it, and, and this is like, honestly, I keep coming back to sales 101, and, <laughs> and I probably do this until I'm either forced to retire or, you know, they fire me, right? Sales 101. Your buyer is going to go on a journey, and the whole idea of a sales cycle or a sales process is to overlay what the buyer's doing and to make that process as easy as possible for the buyer. And then for us to have a little bit of, or to share some of the control, Right. And I think that's generally the way these things play out. And the whole idea of a free trial, in my mind, is just allowing the customer to take themselves through a piece of the sales cycle or a piece of the, have some control over their piece of the journey. So to assume then that that one piece of the journey constitutes the entire journey is probably a mistake. Now, it's a Silicon Valley pipe dream that we can, I think, eliminate the entire cost of sale. Now, it's important to try to minimize it, absolutely, um, but I don't think that we're ever going to get to a point where you can just completely sell online. That probably works for certain types of products. Um, it probably works for, in, in some cases, maybe some consumer solutions, but there are still enterprises or large organizations that have a process, and that process involves people. Um, one of the books that I've been working on lately um, from a, um, it's called the Complete Guide to Accelerating Salesforce Performance. This is pretty good. But in here, the author makes a good analogy where he says, sales is like the, basically the animals in the, of the animal kingdom, and it's the toughest organization to probably manage because it's about people dealing with other people. Yeah. Um, and that's still what's happening at the end of the day. Now, I do think that every sales organization and every VP of sales needs to have an online channel especially if you're selling software. There absolutely needs to be an online channel, but online is just another channel. Um, and in some cases, it's a lead-in to a salesperson then accompanying the buyer on that journey and then helping them see the value um, and then helping them convert or be, to become a customer and then to stay a customer and to stay a happy customer. Um, I do think some of the, 
trends that we're starting to see will continue to grow. I think we will see more inside type sales in the long run. I think we will see more national key account teams alongside inside sales. Um, I think sales engineering will stay like an important part of the software sales process. Um, so I think those things will continue. But no, I, I, I don't think we're coming to a day where salespeople will just disappear. I think their role will change. And I think some of the parts of their role will change. But again, yeah. I think buyers go on a journey and the salesperson is there to guide that buyer through the journey. The title may change. We may call them an advisor or an account advisor um, or something or a key account manager or you may see more account manager type titles than just like salesperson, but that's just the title. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that function still is there. It's funny. I, I've seen there's one kind of um, unicorn in the SaaS space, right? There are a lot of unicorns in the SaaS space, sure. you know, kind of early stage companies that have valuations north of a billion dollars. But they've made a lot of hype around saying, we don't have salespeople in our organization. You know, so you look at it and you go talk to them and you're right. They don't have salespeople. But they have a hell of a lot of advocates that are all on quota. And when you look at their profiles, they're some of the sure. best salespeople that I've ever seen. So yeah. some of that, and you understand that some of it may be changing the name to better uh, align yourself with, uh, with the customers that, that you're doing to better, you know, yeah. they may not like the title of a salesperson. They may like feeling that better dealing with an advocate, but the function that they're doing is still kind of the classic sales function. You know, the thing though that, that you look at too is, is even with cloud-based software, even with it, though it's kind of standardized type of, of a product offering, what the salesperson still does and what the customer success people still do is really take it to say, how do I use this product and get meaning out of it for myself. So it's it's kind of, I use the telecom kind of uh, analogy of there's that last mile problem. You know, sure. I can take something, you know, like uh, say salesforce.com or uh, Google Docs or something like that, but then I say, how, how do I use that and adapt it to, to my business, to my workflows, to what I'm trying to achieve? how do I get penetration through the organization around that and how do I get growth through the organization? And I think that's where a lot of this kind of hype and mythology about freemiums and freeware and, and, and that kind of thing kind of goes to the wayside because you still need somebody that helps the customer say, here's how you create meaning for it and value within your own organization. Sure. At one point we totaled up almost 50 different subscription business models. So you mentioned the freemiums to the you know, different upgrade options. If you were to tally them all up, I think there's upwards of about 50 different ways you can price a subscription or price a, a software product. Um, so whether or not you choose one versus the other, my, I don't know. I think, you're, I think the best way to do that is to test it and see which one works best and to continue to test until you figure out which one works ideally for your buyer and for your product. There's probably not a one-size-fits-all solution to that problem. Well, the other thing, too, is, is you know, kind of growth within that account. You know, sure. your, your freemium model or, or your, you know, free for a month or 30 days or something like that model might work for one user. But 
you know, if you're a salesperson, I believe it's my God-given right to 100% share of the account. So I want to make sure that everybody that can be using that tool in the account is using that. So, you know, part of our strategy in, in SaaS sales, which may be a little bit different than, than in other sales, is now that we've kind of got that beachhead, how do we identify that person and go after expanding that relationship in the account? Totally. So in my mind, that's a true account management play. And once you're in with an account, you're looking for additional opportunities to engage yep. and to have them use the product. And the customer success team, as well as the, if there's an account manager on that account, should be looking at using some systems to look at some data to say what features are they using, what features are they not using, and then using what I would call some if sales 101, let's get back to who are the other divisions inside this prospect or inside this prospect or inside this company yeah. that could be using the product, um, and then ask for some introductions and some referrals and you start to work your way across that account so that you can you know, penetrate the account a little fuller. Um, you know, I'd call it land and expand or you know, get a beachhead and then work your way in. So yeah, similar, similar concepts. That's absolutely important in these, um, in these business models, especially where there's probably multiple teams inside of any one company that are using your software product that could benefit from it. Um, I call them tiger teams and they exist all over corporate America or all over, um, really, the business world in general. Um, and when it comes to these software as a service solutions, in many cases, they're inexpensive enough that your buyer or that a user can go and sign up with a credit card and put it on their company card and just get started. Um, and now that's a beachhead, right? That's a beachhead in my mind. How do we use that beachhead to then you know, build some consensus around other organizations or teams inside that same company to, to want to use the product. And it really, at the end of the day, it all comes down to value. There's got to be a real value proposition there for them. Um, it's got to solve a real problem, which gets us back to why are we engaging in the first place? What's the pain? And then what's our solution? Um, yep. And again, to me, again, that's sales 101. What is the pain? What are we offering? And how can we help? So again, kind of all the fundamentals that we learn right. as good salespeople really prevail. And, you know, just like we have differences in business models or differences in how customers leverage and get value out of our solutions, we have to know that really well for ourselves and for our customer base and use, um, exercise that every single day. So Absolutely. I don't disagree with that at all. I think this really does come down to fundamentals. And to be, um, as we used to say in the military, to be brilliant at the basics. Uh, because if you can't be brilliant at the basics, the other stuff is just going to get even more difficult. Absolutely, absolutely. Ted, let's talk a little bit. Uh, new accounts, you know, acquiring yeah. new accounts. What's the prospecting model look like in, in cloud-based sales or SaaS sales? Are you primarily yeah. dealing with people who may have signed up and starting to leverage that? Do you have any kind of pure outbound type of prospecting? What are the models that you find uh, working? So I think if you ask 10 people, you probably get 10 different answers. But my perspective on it is, as I mentioned earlier, I think the free trials are great. I think that's a wonderful place to start. I don't think you can stop there unless you're driving so much volume to the free trials that your team can farm free trials and convert them to paying customers and never have to worry about anyone else. So I think the right model is probably a mix of some inbound versus some outbound. And then one piece of your inbound is probably what's coming in through trials. 
Um, yeah. And you want to look at the trial as almost an outsourced piece of the sales cycle or the buyer's journey, where the buyer takes okay. himself through it. Um, the salesperson or the evangelist or account advisor, whatever title you're calling them, can engage. And then, yeah. again, you probably still want to take that prospect back through the whole qualification and discovery piece, um, even if they're in a trial, because that information becomes valuable later on when you're trying to ask for the business or to close the business. Right, um, and I think that's the, I yeah. think that's kind of the critical part, kind of in that last mile. Even though that they're using the yeah. product, you know, how do we we translate that into a business just, justified proposal that says, sure. "Here's how you justify this, and here's the value you get from it." And they won't yeah. necessarily get that from the trial. Let me yeah. shift a little bit to a slightly different topic, and it's probably less salesperson related, but maybe more sales management related. Sure. You know, a lot of us, you know, I, again, I come from kind of a computer hardware and software background, and one of the things we learned many years ago was to leverage channels. You know, sure. so you have this, this huge infrastructure of channels, whether it be kind of two-step and you leverage distribution and then resellers at the end, whether you leverage systems integrators to go in, you know, uh, Oracle and SAP and IBM and, and Microsoft have made a, a huge amount of money by, you know, basically leveraging systems integrators to go in and implement and customize that software uh, in the customer environment. What happens to the channel in this? How do you effectively leverage channels, or, or do you move to a different kind of model? Yeah, so I think it depends on the product, and I do think you explore several different models, but channel is still extremely important. Mm -hmm. So we generally tend to see two types of channels that emerge. There's the, like the value-added resellers or the service partners, which come on in and perhaps they do what you would find with a traditional consultancy. They make recommendations. They deploy solutions. They're probably on a reseller type of compensation model. Um, and then they have some additional services that they can upsell around the product. And then there's also the technology partner side where someone else may use your APIs or your platform and build a service of their own that extends the technical capabilities of your platform. Yep. So think about um, a popular one on the consumer side is Evernote. And Evernote is a note-taking app and service that runs both in the browser and on your phone. And there's hundreds of other partners now that use the Evernote APIs to build another service um, right. that extends Evernote's capability. And it's a product that I've used for years and I really like, and I love to mention that one. So in that particular case, they have a channel, which is these technology partners. Yeah. Um, and they come on in and, again, build something on top of it that extends its capabilities. So I think in most software-as-a-service companies, you'll probably see channels, and you'll probably see them emerging along these two dimensions, one on the tech partner side and then the other on the service partner side. And then where you can leverage existing relationships, I mean, if you have a business like we do, um, with existing ISVs or systems integrators or MSPs, um, you know, th that's an opportunity then to engage further with some existing channel partners and strengthen your relationship with them as well. And then again, you're giving them some additional products to take to market. So and I think I see it as a win-win. Everybody wins. Yeah, so the models really are changing quite a bit. I, you know, I, I think, you know, virtually every major cloud player I see these days, there's a section on, on their site that's a marketplace. 
marketplace. And those are some of those additional kind of apps, you know, like Evernote. Uh, uh, Evernote's one of my favorite uh, 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 products. And, you know, I go to the marketplace every once in a while to find something, you know, I need to do something a little bit easier, or a little bit more differently, a little bit differently, you know, so you find good kind of complementary solutions that enable you to, to, to really accomplish some, some, some better things with the tools. And you see this, you know, across the board and in places like salesforce.com, there's a huge marketplace all there. So, so that's a great dynamic. You also see a huge infrastructure of business, you know, around how do we take this cloud-based product and adopt it to our own business processes, our own workflows, and, and so on. So you see a lot of uh, Google apps, uh, I'll call them integrators out there, sure. uh, salesforce.com integrators, and so on and so forth. So I still think I do see that that this whole kind of channel and partner and alliance model being very strong and very important, uh, perhaps in many cases much more important than they were in, in some kind of the old hardware and software models that we had. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think part of this is when you look at the senior most titles for people in what is traditionally the sales function today, you know, that you don't always see like a senior vice president of business development or sales. In a lot of cases, it's called the chief revenue officer. Yeah. And I think that's a recognition of the fact that revenue is going to come from multiple sources today in multiple channels. So you're going to have distributors and resellers and tech partners, and you're going to have an online channel, and you're going to have a direct sales force, and you're going to have several other probably several products and, you know, through growing through things like acquisitions and partnerships. So there's just a, it's a lot more, I think it's a little more complex of an ecosystem than we've had in the past. And I think you're starting to see that even reflected in some of the titles that people carry. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you're, this, now you're starting to bridge into kind of the final area I wanted to explore was yeah. how do metrics change? You know, so for yeah. instance, I can say, you know, if I'm uh, uh, selling, you know, complex software, software licenses or hardware, you know, I may be a salesperson that may have a, a $5 million quota and each one of my licenses costs $500,000 and also that says, gee, I got to get 10 customers to sure. make my number. But, you know, now I start looking at it and when I'm selling something at $50 per user per month, Trying to make that $5 million is, is a big challenge. So there has to be a change in the metrics that we look at in kind of the levels of quotas and so on. How does that look in a cloud uh, SAS? Yeah, so it's really going to depend on the products and, and how much you're charging for the products. But I think the, what's important to hone in on is the, what you mentioned earlier, which is backing into what's the right amount of activity and what's the right mm -hmm. behaviors I need to engage in on a daily, weekly, and monthly yep. basis, so that I can hit my number. Um, and I call that, uh, the training I went through, we call that the cookbook. So what do I need to do as a sales rep and then also as a sales manager in order to make sure I'm hitting, and my team is hitting the numbers they need to hit, so we're hitting the revenue goals we need to hit. Yep. But the primary metrics that we see are monthly recurring revenue and then value in the form of annual contracts. And so you would start with whatever number you're handed from your either your CEO or your um, or your sales manager, and then back into using the data that you've collected so far, how many deals need to close or how many new customers need to come on board, um, and then back into it from there using some data that you've collected as a starting point 
And then you want yeah. to continue to refine that over time as you have more data and as you get a better understanding of your business. Um, and of course, um, from a quota perspective, um, we would probably set quotas on a monthly recurring revenue basis or a like a quarterly recurring revenue basis. Yeah. So the number would look different than just a, you've got a $1.6 million annual quota and, and go sell licenses. Um, so we probably want the quota to reflect how we're going to manage the business. So for managing the business on a monthly recurring revenue basis, then quotas should match that monthly yeah. recurring revenue. So we really want to align our sales plan and our sales strategies with the company or the business's strategy. So we want to make sure there's some real alignment between the two. So you might have a whole bunch of kind of new account development people that maybe their primary measurement might be monthly recurring quotas. And then sure. you may have some account management or customer success people who are probably more biased on the uh, annual renewals type of metrics. Yeah. yeah, you could look at it that way. Absolutely. That's one way of breaking it down. So customer success teams and, and a lot of companies do own the number for renewals or essentially once someone becomes a customer, making sure that they stay a customer for the long haul. Um, but if you have some really large accounts and in the form of a, some of the cloud businesses have utility-based billing models. Yep. So in that particular case, you may have just a few of your accounts, so 10 or 20% of your accounts delivering the yep. lion's share of your revenue, in which case that's probably managed by a key account manager or a key account team or uh, like a very senior account executive type of role. Um, and then in the SaaS businesses or the subscription models where you have just a couple of different tiers for right. subscriptions, most of that probably gets handed off to like, a customer's success style team once deals have been closed or once they've been uh, once they've become customers and upgraded to a, to a paying subscription. Outstanding, outstanding. Then yeah. one final area, and I know this probably is near and dear to your heart because I know you're building a team at SolarWinds. Yeah. You know, as you look at hiring, you know, high-performing salespeople into the SaaS world, you know, one thing I think we, we both agree on is you have to be a master of the fundamentals, of the basics of selling, of, of, sure. of finding customers, engaging them, creating value, and, and moving them through closing. Um, is there anything different that you look for as you recruit a salesperson or as you look at somebody that's going to be really successful in a SaaS-based business, say, versus a more traditional kind of selling? So what I would say is I, my guess is that the fundamentals are still the most important across the board. And, you know, I came into sales in this technology SaaS kind of world. Um, and so I, I, my perspective is it's probably the same. What I want are things like a self-starter, somebody yeah. that can generally hold themselves accountable um, and is okay to me coaching them so they need a high degree of coachability, uh, a high degree of adaptability because things are changing on the fly. Yep. Um, and as data comes in, we want to adapt our sales cycle or our processes very quickly. Um, and then I want somebody that can learn, that is an immersive learner, that can dive into a new space, yep. especially because the technology changes so quickly, and then learn very, very rapidly, and then apply what they've learned to the way they do their job. Yep. So those are the things that are, I think, most important. Um, and then not to be wed to any particular style or any particular sales technique or any particular process. So come in with the right attitude um, that we can adapt our processes 
to what's happening in the marketplace so that we can continue to be really successful. But my guess is if you were to go talk to 10 different sales managers that sold hardware or maybe sell <laughs> industrial, industrial services, they're probably going to tell you the same thing, right? They want somebody that's coachable, that they can work with, um, that's going to continue to be adaptable and is going to learn really, really quickly. And then there are the other things that we, you know, generally good indicators of success for salespeople. Are they motivated by money? Um, that's always been an important part of sales, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. Um, are they motivated by the ability to use special skills, uh, which a lot of salespeople are? And do they like to help people? And at the end of the day, those three things I think are important, and it's the confluence of the three um, that I think are going to be the best in this type of role, in this type of, you know, this type of new, new world that we're living in. Well, you kind of took the words out of my mouth because as you were yeah. describing what makes a really high-performing uh, SaaS salesperson, yeah. I was thinking of the conversations I was having with EVPs in, 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 of sales and CEOs in, in kind of more industrial product organizations or software, and it's the same kind of discussion. It's, it's that, that, you know, that continued drive, that, that coachability, that mastery of the basics, that curiosity, both about how to be better as a salesperson, curiosity about the customer and how you help them. You know, all these kinds of things and that constant learning, all these things tend to be constants um, around, you know, good professional salespersonship. And, and, all, and then it's, it's how do we master it within our own company, which becomes, you know, more product mastery and solution mastery and, and knowing who our right customers are. So it seems like, for all the differences in SaaS, there are probably mostly more similarities with, you know, good, solid, high-performance selling with other organizations. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think where the differences come in is the technology is a little different. Yep. And some of the ways we actually engage with customers may be a little different. Yep. Who the customers are may be a little different. Um, if you're selling, like what we're selling to, like we, we generally, it's almost in some cases not even selling, right? It's advising or evangelizing or helping someone see a solution, um, which we can argue all day, is that selling or is that something else? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Um, but like we work primarily with DevOps engineers and software engineers yeah. and DBAs, IT pros. So these are really technical folks that um, probably don't have a ton of time to hop on phone calls yeah. all the time. So in some cases, we have to be able to interact with them through email or through other channels or other mechanisms. So those things are where the differences come in, but the desire to help someone, the desire to um, evangelize a great product, uh, those things are, are common, and I think they're consistent, and I think they always will be. Super, super. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. You've kind of set Likewise. me straight on some of the, the uh, confusion I had about SaaS, and, and again, I get into these conversations with people all the time, so I figure the best way to give people good, solid answers is to have somebody that's been a real master of, of selling and managing high-performance sales organizations in the SaaS environment. So some of our listeners will want to get a hold of you. What's the best way for people to contact you, Chris? LinkedIn, I think, okay. is the, the best place to find me, and, you know, I am recruiting for a new team here, so uh, feel free to check me out on LinkedIn and to reach out. 
Super, super. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I really, I, I enjoy our conversations and I particularly enjoyed this one. Thanks for taking the time. Everybody will really learn a lot from this. Thanks, David.